Amen. Will y'all look attentive and ready? We're going to be in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 22 tonight. We'll be talking about the life of Azahiah. Uh, these are uniquely unsettling times. I think you would agree. But we are on the verge of victory. Despite the devil's best attempts to dissolve our determination and dissuade us from our direction, we with one goal will press on towards the glory of God. Hallelujah. Death, dissension, desertion, and delays, they demand that we depend on divine direction and that's what we aim to do. We have it. You need it. And we're going to deliver it tonight. This evening, we are only covering 12 verses. So this may not be our longest foundations meeting ever, but it is going to be blessed by God. The text tonight is difficult. The actions of some are disheartening. The determination of others is inspiring. So in short... This is the perfect chapter for us this evening. Is there an anointed man of God who will pray? Father, we thank you tonight. Lord, we lift up your mighty name. Mighty God, we say that you breathe upon us tonight. Lord, would you engage our hearts with your very word and our hearts engage your word. Father, we want to be taught by you tonight. Lord, we want to show up in our walk, in our actions, in the attitude of our hearts. Father, would you anoint these men tonight? Would you give them the very words we have told to instruct your people that we might have a one heart and one way? Father, would you help us to move in unity by your very rule Father, breathe upon us tonight. Bless this man tonight, Lord God. Sit upon your people tonight. Sit and throne upon our lives. Father, we exalt you. We say, may this meeting bless and exalt your mighty name. In Jesus' name we pray. Tonight, our normal reader of the scripture is taking care of her mother in the last hours of her life. Actually, the first hours of real life. And for that reason, we're going to break protocol tonight and call on Miss Natalie Aragina to read the chapter. I want to assure you that... However she enunciates a word, whatever her diction happens to be, it is flawless. Let's begin. Second uh, Chronicles 22, the entire chapter, which happens to be 12 verses. The people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's young son, king in his place. Since the raiders who came with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri. He too walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother encouraged him in doing wrong. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after his father's death, they became his advisors to his undoing. 
He also followed their counsel when he went into Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Ahazel, king of Aram, at Ramah Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram. He returned to Jezreel to cover from the wounds they had inflicted on him at Ramah in his battle with Ahazel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, king of Jehoram, king of Judah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. Though Ahaziah's visit to Jehoram, through that, God brought about Ahaziah's downfall. When Ahaziah arrived, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. While Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's relatives, who he had been attending Ahaziah and killed them. He went in search of Ahaziah, and his men captured him while he was hiding in Samaria. He was brought to Jehu and put to death. They buried him, for they said, He was the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So there was no one in the house of Ahaziah powerful enough to retain the kingdom. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. But Jeshosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered and put him in his, in his nurse, oh, sorry, put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Because Jeshoba, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of priest uh, Jehoda, was Ahaziah's sister, she hid the child from Ahaziah so she could not kill him. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years while Ahaziah ruled the land. Oh my God. It was amazing. happy to, to know that in the major translations, each of these names appear slightly differently, and you got them all. So it was great. All right, y'all stretch your hands towards our screens. Mighty God, we thank you for the technology that we have. Lord, we ask that you would help work out what is necessary for us to display your truth. Yes, we are thankful that the men of the God of, God of the past did not have these things and got it done anyway. Lord, we commit to you that we will be full of your spirit and not in need of visual displays. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Brother Linton, this brings us to you. And if you would read the first verse, we're going to take the first 10 or so verses very slowly. And, uh, well, you'll see what we do with it. <laughs> the people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place. Since the raiders who came with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the other sons. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. 
This can be um, a few chapters that are very confusing, and we, we know that. It's because everybody's got the same name. It's my brother Bob, my other brother Bob, and my sister Bob. And because of that, we're going to keep going back to some charts to help keep that straight. Uh, this is King Jehoshaphat's family tree. You see that his father was Asa, his grandfather was Abijah. The son of Jehoshaphat in the NIV is translated Jehoram. Uh, that's J-E-H-O-R-A-M. Uh, you see his name in the text above us. His, uh, his son is Azahiah. Now, I say that because both of those men have counterparts in the north. And the text interchanges some of these, so we'll help keep them straight. But Chronicles is the story of the southern kingdom. It's the story of Judah. So if it doesn't specify, then we're always speaking of the southern kingdom. If it does specify, then we have to take careful pains to know who is being spoken about. Ahaziah is our topic tonight. Do you all all see the red arrow on him? Yes. That's where he falls in the family tree. So Ahaziah is the youngest of sons that were killed by Arabs. We just read that. Yep. Somebody say, sole survivor. Sole survivor. The king this evening is the sole survivor of God's judgment descending upon a family in the form of Arab raiders. I'm going to read to you 2 Chronicles 21, 16 through 17, which describes this event in a little more detail. The Lord aroused against Jehoram, the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs, who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace, together with his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest. So we have someone who is the sole survivor of God's judgment, but he was himself preserved. Now... This is mercy that he's still alive. I mean, if these Arab ra raiders come and destroy everybody, he's the sole survivor. You could be see that could be seen as the mercy of God, right? Yeah. Well, the mercy of God's clearly displayed in his life, but to no avail for the kingdom of God. You read the chapter tonight. He is a product of the mercy of God, and yet that doesn't really have an effect on him. I wonder how many others that really doesn't have an effect on. But I want to read Galatians 5.13, and here are some passages on this. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Amen. When you were called of Christ, when you were born again, you were set free, you were free from bondage, you received mercy from God instead of judgment that would have been placed on you. Don't use that freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Amen. Unfortunately, this king does. He he is alive, and his other brothers are not, but he does not use that for the kingdom. The next one is Romans 6, 15, 17 through, 6, 15 through 17. I'm going to read it, and then Eric will expound on it. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. In an ideal world, if you 
are the sole survivor of judgment that fell on people, if mercy was shown to you, then you have been freed and you will always be free. But it's not an ideal world. Sometimes our theology presents things in an ideal fashion that is practically inapplicable. Just because you have been set free to serve Christ does not mean that you are guaranteed to remain free unless you present yourself daily as a slave to righteousness. And then you remain free. If you present yourself to sin, then you will be put into bondage in the same way as if you had never been freed from it, except exactly worse, actually worse. If you're again ensnared, it's worse than if you had never known. The New Testament says this plainly. So our goal tonight is to learn from Ahaziah. The object of mercy, live in the mercy that you were given. Set free to live in Christ. Live in Christ. Do not use your freedom to present yourself as a slave again. You know, when you think about the role of the Arabs, and I thought we would have a few of our Arab brethren here tonight, but I think they're home taking care of their babies. They act as something of a barometer throughout the book of Chronicles. When I say barometer, I mean you can tell the spiritual weather based on what the Arabs are doing. This is a book about Jews, but if you watch what the Arabs are doing, we know how God feels about a situation, what He wants to do in a life. Did you catch in 2 Chronicles 17, 11, as Justin read it a minute ago? I'll say it again for you. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute. And Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. Why? Why are the Arabs bringing gifts to Jehoshaphat? Well, he was righteous. He was advancing the kingdom. And the Arabs were used by God to bless him. But that is not the case in the next generation. During the lifetime of Jehoram, and read out of Second Chronicles 21, 16. He was wicked and didn't advance the kingdom. And you'll see what the spiritual barometer around them says. The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. Before we move on for just a moment, what's worth considering about this, because we're focusing on the kings of Judah. Are these adversaries the enemy? Are they God's judgment? Yes, they're an indicator of the spiritual condition of God's people. If you're really in Christ, you're going to have mixed people groups around you that are looking to take your life. How you relate to them will depend upon how you've been relating to the King of Kings. As we move on later in 2 Chronicles, we're going to encounter King Uzziah, who was a righteous king. 2 Chronicles 26, 7 says, God helped him. He easered him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Ger Baal and against the Munites. The idea is that Ahaziah was spared because of the Davidic promise and the hope that he would advance the kingdom when he grew up and took the throne. The Arabs were a tool for retribution or reward, but the promise of God remains in either case. His lamp had not gone out. 
Think through this for a minute. Trials. They, they act this way in our lives. Say, well, this brother has trials and I have trials and he's not doing well with God and I am. Well, exactly. <laughs> His trials will take him further away from God and yours will bring you closer. Come on. Trials are like Arabs. When you're doing well with God, they bring you gifts. When you're not doing well with God, then they bring you a hastened destruction. Now, if God is able to do that with a people group that are enemies, please don't think that He cannot use your life in either direction as well. Say, well, what could we possibly mean by that? This brother's in the church and he's doing great. This brother's in the church and he's not doing great. The Word has always been life to those who will abide in it. And it has been death to those that won't. But all kind of people receive it. You're going to find out tonight that not everybody who's buried in the tomb of the kings was worthy to be buried there. But sometimes burying someone who's not worthy to be buried there is a great reminder to everybody. Like, not everybody lives up to their calling. Not everybody reaches the destiny for which they were born. But it's entirely up to you. And I fully intend to. How about you? Let's pick up verse 2. Azariah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri. All right, let's pause right here. Let's talk a little bit about Athaliah, this granddaughter of Omri. I want to show you a slide, again, so we can see this family. You see the arrow coming from Jehoram? Jehoram is Ahaziah's father. Jehoram marries Athaliah, which is a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So Ahaziah's mother is a descendant of Jezebel. Azariah's grandmother is Jezebel. So there is a wicked mixing here between Ahaziah's father Jehoram married Athaliah and they produced Azariah. Omri, Ahab, and Athaliah. Athaliah was the daughter and disciple of Jezebel. Wow! He was in Jezebel's house. What was Jezebel known for? Killing the prophets of God. She was known for that. She was prophesied against. And yet, Ahaziah's father married this woman. Her influence throughout the biblical narrative remains a warning to the people of God to this day. This would be a message for the singles be careful who you marry. I'm sure Athaliah was beautiful on the outside. I'm sure she uh, had all of the right, you know, got it going on. I'm sure she was a brick house. And yet, look what she caused. Be careful who you marry. Sometimes we learn even while we're teaching. It's an exciting time to never know what's going to happen next. You might have been warned many times to stay away from that painted Jezebel. What you didn't know is that Jezebel often has disciples you also have to stay away from. They're not all painted standing in towers waiting to be eaten by dogs. Some of them have just learned Jezebel's ways. And they actually infiltrate the house of God. And while they're in the house of God, their sole desire, I don't mean singular desire, I mean their soul's desire, is to bring down the royal line. And they don't even know it. It shows up in the way they dress, the way they act, the way they talk. 
We don't want any of that here. You don't want any of that here, do you? No. Look, what you allow into your home, it has lasting effects. You listening to me, daddies? Oh, yeah. Listen to me, fathers and husbands? This is what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about. Yearly, go look at your house. Go through it with the light of the menorah. Get on your hands and knees and crawl into the corners and make sure you have not allowed compromise into your house. The Apostle Paul appealed to us about this. I'd actually like to hand out two scriptures and we'll do them fairly yeah. quickly. Um, Pat Rosales, take First Chronicles 5, 6 through 8. Corinthians. Corinthians. Yeah, Corinthians, yes. And uh, Mr. Tisdale. Take 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. So whenever you're ready. 5 through 6. No, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of the dough? Oh my goodness, the Bible is talking about a yeast infection Uh in a home. (laughs) And they had to tend to it yearly. And it was a seven-day project. Wow. (laughs) Because it has the ability to destroy life in the house. Okay, keep going. Yes, sir. Uh, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be new, that that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For the Christ of our Passover land has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of the malice of wickedness, but the bread with uh, out yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. You're going to have to get rid of the yeast inside of you. That is why we pray through the tabernacle. That's why we uh, have brothers around us. That's why we search the word. Paul's first address in this narrative is a personal examination to make sure inside of your house, where your spirit lives, inside of your body, you do not have contamination that doesn't belong. You can see that in the kings of Judah allowing a destructive marriage, allowing fear that a northern power would come in, allowing yeast caused the corruption of an entire line. It always works this way. And it always will work that way. What was our next passage? 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. Who has it? But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Pause there for a minute, Tisdale. The Apostle Paul says, but now I am writing you that you must not. Somebody say, must not. Must not. So we just learned that we cannot have yeast inside of us, that we must rid ourselves of it. And now the Apostle Paul says you must not associate with the list that was just given. Man, that sounds very direct. Sounds very harsh. Sounds commanding of a pastor to give to a flock. He must be a cult leader. He must be a cult leader. Or perhaps he understands the destructive influence of yeast and what will happen when men and women associate with those that are contaminated. Keep reading, Tisdale. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? 
Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Mind your own business, in other words. Why are you worried about those outside of the church? He's addressing saints just like us that must have right judgments within the church. All right, I need to know you guys are with me. Say, within the church. So you, LCM, us, we must learn to rightly judge within the church. God will judge those that are outside. Therefore, expel the wicked man from among you and let God handle it. Look, I just want to interject here and say that we do this. We always have. We always will. We never plan to stop. Just this last service, somebody became insolent with one of the pastors because they were questioned about their holiness. We haven't seen them in years, but the last time we saw them, they were sleeping with broads, boys, and four-footed beasts. And that's not a joke. And it will be recorded for all eternity. Do we not have an obligation to check and see where that person is at? And they had not made it two weeks in holiness, but called us a cult for not allowing them to attend this service. I will not allow us to become liable to destruction. And I will not put your wives and your children at risk. And the whole mamby-pamby Christian community can hate it because they have no spiritual spine. But they would not let the man in their own home, but they want them in the house of God. Say, well, we want to minister to people. Yes, we want to minister to people who are repenting, who are being drawn to the holiness of God. But there will never be a time that we look the other way in situations like that. And the gentleman actually told one of the pastors, so when I show up here next week, you're saying you're going to throw me out? Well, there was, not, uh, there was an affirmative answer to that. What I'm suggesting is that no pastor would have to do that because every man in this room would stand up and say, that doesn't belong here. Amen. Yeah. Oh, amen. Come on. amen. We've shown you a couple family trees. They're beginning to be intermingled. There's not such a distinct line as the house of Judah and the house of the northern kingdoms. There's an intermingling of darkness and light in these kind of marriages between two houses that was undoubtedly for political reasons, to make sure that they were acceptable to the world around them, that they were compassionate enough and loving enough. The kings of Judah thought it was prudent to appease the compromised northern neighbors and so ended up compromised themselves. We should be and are being warned in this regard tonight. Amen. Are you with us? Yes. We're going to take these lessons, and we are going to stand because the Word of God instructs us. Brother Linton, will you read verse 3 for us? He too walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother encouraged him in doing wrong. Man, so we're reading Chronicles, right? Ahaziah is of the house of... Judah, David, southern kingdom. His descent is the line of David, but by practice, he is of the line of Ahab. And who was the one encouraging him the whole time? His mother, who is a daughter of Ahab. This was lingering leaven in his life. This was leaven that was lingering from an intermingling. It was leading his line astray. 
you are seeing here the entire line of David being led astray because of lingering leaven. You know, Proverbs 12, 26 says, a righteous man is cautious in friendship. Man, that's a shock, isn't it? You would think that we would want to be friends with everyone around us. No, that's a politician. You know, meet somebody in Starbucks, be friends with them. Tell them where you go to church. Even though you don't know, he might be doing horrible things that cause us liable to destruction. A righteous man is cautious who he is friends with. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. You can't be friends with the wicked long enough before they start to lead you astray. That is why the word says, I have called you to be separate from them. Come out from amongst them and be separate for I am holy. Our friendships, alliances, and associations must be carefully considered. The consequences can be quite high. You know what happens in this, in this story. But we know plenty of people who have allowed their alliances to lead them astray, all the while saying that we are the ones being led astray. The thing that happens is they lead you a little bit down into leaven consuming, and then you start becoming deceived, and you think that we are the ones with the problem, when instead we're not. Another one is men listening to women. I mean, that's an obvious problem, isn't it? Yes. Here is a king listening to a woman, his mother of all people. Men listening to women, by the way, who are not given authority by God, is also leaven. 1 Corinthians 11 teaches the order of shalom for a reason. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? Who was deceived first? Eve was. It is a protection from all, for all of us, a safeguard from leaven to put this right shalom structure in order. Men, we do not succumb. We lead. We are the leaders. And women are those that respond. And women, you should want that. You should never settle for a man that you can lead because that will never put you in a good place. If you get you an itty-bitty little manlet boy on the inside, no matter what he looks like on the outside, then your life will go down a drain because God designed this in a way that men must lead. One of the most disappointing things about Azahiah is he's a mama's boy. <laughs> he's, uh, he has not yet been nursed, uh, weaned. He's actually still being nursed. This is a mama's boy imitating Athaliah, who is Jezebel's disciple. Look, the whole nation suffers for this. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Man, if you've got to call your mama to know what to do, then she didn't raise you well. And certainly your daddy didn't raise you well. Our advice to every groom is you're a man now. Take care of your mother and listen to your father. That's how that's supposed to work. Because if mama's still having to teach you while you are leading your wife, then mama, you know what? He won't be fit to be there to lead you when your husband's gone. Somewhere along the way, we have to embrace God's design. And our society is moving it to you're an itty-bitty little boy until you're about 45 years old. It cannot be this way. It causes nations to go astray. This nation is suffering for this behavior. This warning extends into the Newer Testament. Have you heard of a church called Thyatira? Yes. Yes. They're held responsible for something. 
They're spoken to by Jesus. You want to hear it? Yes. Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, Thyatira, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Somebody say tolerate. Tolerate. That woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrifice to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. When you tolerate people who are unwilling to repent, that's bad. When you let them teach you, that's worse. When they happen to be women, that's absolutely shameful. Somewhere along the way, the church is going to have to find its identity. And it's found in a man named Jesus Christ. What he is, what he promotes, what he does, that is what we must be, what we must promote, what we must do. And if you lower that standard, then the church is no longer the pillar and the foundation of truth that the world can look at to be saved. If you want to know what that looks like, watch TBN or look around anywhere that you see. There is no standard of holiness. There is no actual church discipline. And so, it looks like two things. It looks like the kingdom of Judah during this time, or it looks like the book of Judges. That's what it looks like. But that's not what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Oh, come on. The kingdom of God is supposed to look like the Son of God. Amen. That's what it's supposed to look like. What's verse 4? All right, we're going to backtrack just for a moment. Our king here could have been born anywhere and God caused him to be born in Israel. Yeah. More than that in the southern kingdom. Yeah. Now he's a descendant of David. Yeah. That descendant of David has the Levites available to it. More than just the Levites, he has the house of Aaron that was set apart as priest available to him. He has access to the rightful place of worship, the only one on the entire earth where you can seek the almighty living God. More than that, he has access to a written copy of the word. In fact, it's supposed to be on his person all of the time. But Ahaziah consulted the Samaritan kings, priests, and advisors. This is the undoing of him. This is a satanic stratagem, if you will that is destroying him from the inside out. Now, I don't know any group of Christians that have been advantaged in every way. That out of all of the churches that you could be at, you're here. And yet we still choose to rely upon other counselors. Saints, I want to warn you this evening. These are things that we are personally fighting for. Samaritan counselors in your life are more dangerous than a drug dealer. Yeah. Parents, they're more dangerous to your children than a drug dealer. You should sooner give them an illicit substance than leave them with a Samaritan counselor. They purport to be godly, but are wicked. They guise it. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. We must rid ourselves of these advisors. And as men of God that are equipped to lead our homes, to lead our house, recognize devilish plants that are there to attack our family or our body. 
Why all of a sudden is this relative calling you 10 days out from the one association? Don't be surprised. Do not be foolish. The enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Especially if it occurs every September. Every September. (laughs) They're trying to subvert a divine direction. Don't give in. Take hold of what has been provided for you. False teachers never declare themselves as false. (laughs) They just don't. Do not be surprised and be deceived just because someone put on a guise. But you will know them by their fruit. Stop being soothed by sinful speech and look to see the fruit and you will not go wrong. By the scratching of men's ears, they are soothed into taking sinful counsel that destroys their very soul. Look, we need the right desire. We need right direction. We need prophets that are able to correct us and warn our very soul and praise the living God we have them. Verse 5, Linton. Hazel, king of Aram, and Ramoth Gilead. The Arameans wanted Jordan. All right, so I'm going to put up this slide again. This verse refers to Ahaziah, king of Judah, allying with Joram, king of Israel, in a battle against Aram. He's allying with his uncle. It says Jehoram there. Other translations, Joram. This is the guy he's talking about, the king of Israel, his uncle. Y'all catch the difference? We've switched lines in the same name. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it is a mistake that keeps being repeated through the generations. It's a repeat. You remember Jehoshaphat? He got an arrow hole in his back like this, but survived because he repented. His grandfather did the exact same thing. He survived because he repented. Jehoram is not going to be so lucky. He thinks he can get away with it, but he doesn't because he doesn't know how to repent like his grandfather does. This shows you that lingering leaven, it tends to go throughout the whole generations. Jehoshaphat had this problem, and luckily he got it right. But this problem went down into his son Jehoram, then went into Ahaziah, and he continually struggled and failed in those areas. How important is it to get these things right now? Get rid of the leaven in your home, in your life, right now, so that the successive generations do not follow the same thing. Amen. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the generations. My son, I see all of the things that are inside me, except they're magnified. And thank God they're being corrected right now, because we are in a body that warns, corrects, and changes things. That's why the daddy at the Feast of Unleavened Bread is supposed to be the one holding the menorah. While the whole family is following him, going throughout the house, getting rid of, un, uh, getting rid of leaven. Yeah. Because the daddy is responsible for what remains in the house, what remains in the children. He's responsible for the generations. If you're a man in this room, we're trying to get you to rise to the high calling Come of Christ. Amen. Amen. Your family literally depends on it. What's verse 6? battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Jehoram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. I know that those names get to be a lot of fun. Let me shorten them for you to help you out. Joram, we're going to put him in Ahab's line. Okay? Azahiah, we're putting him in the kingdom of Judah. So what has happened is Azahiah has got 
sympathies for Joram of Ahab. That's who he has sympathy for. Can I tell you sympathy for sinners who are wounded in judgment can bring their wounds upon you? Something that Christians don't understand is a carnal compassion, a compassion that wasn't directed from Christ. Carnal compassion can kill you. This is a fact that is rarely acknowledged in today's climate. But it's thoroughly grounded in the Word of God. We need to wake up to that. I want to remind you of a a story that occurs in number 16. Okay? Because we got Dathan, Abiram, and a guy named On. And I want you to hear what Moses says to him. It's number 1623. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah. Dathan and Abiram. Notice On's not with them. Because he's already got on with his life. He, he's not going to stay. He was wrong, but he's not going to stay wrong. When he recognizes he's wrong, he's repenting. On lives another day. Do I have to tell you what happens to Dathan and Abiram? The earth swallows them. See, when people are displaying genuine godly sorrow and repentance, we should receive them. But, when they're obstinately persisting in rebellion, retreat from their company, no matter how sinfully smooth their speech is. False teachers and backslidden Christians never admit to it. They always tell you they're doing just fine. The problem's with the standard. They want to play on an 8-foot goal because they dislike the 10-foot goal. Okay? (laughs) Korah's own sons took Moses' advice. They moved away from their daddy. That's biblical. They moved away from their daddy because their daddy was moving away from God. They chose God over their daddy. So they earned the right to write Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is for the director of music of the sons of Korah. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Saints, it's time for us to prefer the presence of God over the preferences of others. This cannot be a more important topic as we enter into the holiday seasons. We know, we know, we know, and yet so often we're repetitiously deceived when it's time to go out to battle. When Ahab is calling, when we treasure the presence of God above all else, he will be your refuge. He will be your strength. He will be your stronghold, even if the very earth is giving way around you. We're going to keep moving to verse 7, Linton. This is my second favorite verse in the chapter. Just saying. <laughs> Through Ahaziah's visit to Joram, God brought about Ahaziah's downfall. Whoa. Who did? God. God, God did. When Ahaziah arrived, he went out with Joram to meet Jehu, son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. Man, it's never, it's never a good thing to meet Jehu when you're on the wrong side of the line, is it? <laughs> I bet he got called a cult leader. <laughs> Can you tell that's under my skin? I wear it as a badge of honor. 
And so do the pastors. It's just amazing the frequency with which it occurs. And it's always spoken by by someone that has not lived righteously for decades. Not lived righteously for days. Not lived righteously even through the conversation. Look, the NIV says God brought about. Anybody have an ESV? It says it was ordained by God. Talk about an ordination, man. I can't wait to get ordained. For what? The LXX says by God came the final event. (laughs) Now look, we teach in this church that nations have destiny. Heads of nations have destinies. You know, men choose to participate or escape those destinies, but the will of God will be done. Men have a choice. They can participate in what God has determined, or they can escape through repentance, but the will of God will be done. It is a sad truth that Joram was destined to be put to death. I mean, this is the king of Judah. It is sad that he was destined to be put to death by Jehu, but it is even more sad that a king of Judah was executed solely because he lived as Omri, Ahab, and Joram, whom he's following. He decided to live like those men, and therefore God gave him the same dish he gave to them. So the king of Israel, Joram, he was destined to be put to death by Jehu. You know who was not supposed to be put to death? Ahaziah. But he is put to death because he lives exactly like the king of Israel. Can I tell you, you have an amazing destiny? If you're in this room, you have an amazing destiny. Unless you live exactly like the world, then you'll be treated exactly like the world by the God that gave you the great destiny. You'll actually be held more accountable because of what you've been privileged with. Look, there is kind of a, a, a small... I don't know. I like it. You might not like it, but I like it. I want to show you something Rashi says. Is that all right? This is about verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7 again from the Masoretic. Now the downfall of Ahaziah was from God, insofar as he came to Joram. You catching that? It was from God because he went to Jehoram. And when he came, he went out with Jehoram to Jehu, the son of Nimshi whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. The word for downfall here is the same word that is used in Ezekiel 16, which I do not have the courage to read in this body with the varying ages. (laughs) But it speaks of a person who is confused and wallowing in their own blood. Downfall is a dynamic translation. Putting this together... God brought about a final event, or God ordained an event for Ahaziah. And it was that he would be wallowing, confused in his own blood. That is the same God that we serve. Christians can be embarrassed of the Older Testament if they want, because they have reimagined God in a new light. He's the same God. He never changes. If you are committed to following worldly ways, God will be committed to making sure you die like a worldly person. But that's not our destiny. And that's not what we're aiming for. Tonight we're going up higher. Tonight we're taking our stand. Tonight we're drawing clear lines. Verse 8, Brother Linton. (laughs) That's such a great word. (laughs) I mean, it's very literal. You know? 
He's not administrating judgment. He's not administering judgment. He's not just dishing out judgment. The brother is quite literally executing judgment. He found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's relatives who had been attending Ahaziah, and he killed them. Of course he did. That's what he does. Brother's good at his job. Elijah, Elisha, Jehu, and even Hazazel to an extent were raised up specifically to deal with the north. Somebody say the north. The north. But they end up dealing with those who acted like the north. We said it just a moment ago. We are going up higher. Higher. And in our process of going up higher, climbing the mountain, we're going to recognize a giant pitfall that is called death by association. When you are like the enemy, the ambassador, the executioner of the Lord may just so happen to mistake you. The northern kingdom was being ravaged by the devil, their own sinful decisions, and God's judgment. Now the southern kingdom is suffering because they are acting like the north. Look, in Christianity, your uniform, it is your deeds. It's what you're wearing. The gown of the bride of Christ is her righteous actions. You say, no, 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 I was on the other side. Yes, but you're wearing the wrong uniform. See, you're not just credited with a uniform, you actually have to make it. It's made of your deeds. It's made of your faith-filled actions. No, 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 I wasn't. I'm in Vietnam, but I'm not Viet Cong. Then why are you wearing that uniform? I'm sorry I shot you. You looked like the enemy. See, that's what's happening here. What's verse 9? He then went went in search of Ahaziah, and his men captured him while he was hiding in Samaria. He was brought to Jehu and put to death. They buried him, for they said, He was a son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So there was no one in the house of Ahaziah powerful enough to retain the kingdom. Alright, so the text says Ahaziah was hiding in Samaria. It might as well say Ahaziah was abiding in Samaria. That's true! He lived in Judah, but his life was like Samaria. He was just in the place that he always wanted to be, that he always acted like, that he always wanted to be in. Ahaziah, the best thing that happened to him is that his lines were clear at that point. He was not in the southern kingdom anymore pretending. He was there where he wanted to be. Ahaziah's hiding in Samaria is like a supposed saint sitting in a porn shop. Or a compromised Christian hiding in a shallow, popular church. God won't judge me. I'm a Christian. But you're dressed exactly like the enemy. You're eating what the enemy's eating. You're doing what... How would we have known that you were a Christian? We couldn't, because you're not. It's safe to say that there's nowhere you can hide from the judgment of the Lord. There's nowhere that you can go and think that you're doing well or you're hiding out that the Lord won't find you. You can be sure that your sin will find you out. No one should mistake his burial, though, for being an endorsement of his person. You see he was buried? He is declared to be wicked. 2 Kings 8.27 says this. But because of the Lord's love... And this is the only reason he's buried like this. Because of the Lord's love for the house of David and men like Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord, Ahaziah is afforded a burial. That is the only reason is because he comes from the southern line and because he's Jehoshaphat's son. 
I imagine his tomb was an ever-present reminder, though, of the cost of compromise. I mean, they knew the story, saw the tomb. It's almost like Ananias and Sapphira's burial by the church. If you had to walk by that every day on your way to church, you might not be stealing the tithe money you're supposed to be giving to the Lord. If you knew that that cost them their life, you might be more inclined to do the right thing there. See, the argument that because he was buried in the tomb of his fathers that he's saved, it, that argument begins to fall apart. Ananias and Sapphira were buried by the church. Does that mean they weren't judged by God? What if, what if the reason they were buried by the church is to show that the church is supposed to take care of its own? The judgment begins in the house of God. Now, although Satan is not mentioned in these passages, the phrase, there was no one in the house of Ahaziah powerful enough to retain the kingdom, clearly had to be Satan's goal, and it still is. Man. Satan had been working in this family line to destroy everyone who could clearly retain the kingdom. And Satan had whittled down the kingdom to such an extent that there was no one. That is how Satan works. He works on both ends towards yes. the middle. So there is no possible opportunity that anyone would take their stand. And that's what's happening here. This reminds us of John 10, 10 through 11. The thief comes only, say only, only, only to steal and kill and destroy. You would do well to remember that. You would do well to look for its effects all around you. When you see death, stealing, killing, and destroying, even though it might be through someone who is calling themselves a Christian, mind you, whose father is he? Is he a father of the devil or a father of Jesus? But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The devil had been working this kingdom so much, he already had the north where he wanted it. The north was already deceived into following false gods and making it look like the right worship. He had them where he wanted. He was whittling down the southern kingdom so much. But thankfully, there is a God who is faithful in Israel. He was leaving them with a witness. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 10 as we continue. Before we do that, we want to hit one practical note. As we're reading these chapters over and over again, because of sin and compromise, the northern tribes appear as the enemy. Have you gotten that message? Oh, yeah. You need to remember that the good shepherd ordained that all 12 tribes would belong to him. He is the God of all Israel. When we're looking at the results of sinful compromise, that is the enemy's scheme. Our God is one who desires to shepherd from every tongue, every nation, every language, and he has a remnant that he's calling out for even in our number. They are not the enemy. The enemy is the one that is working to cause leaven to spread through the whole body. If you love your brother, then rebuke him frankly and save him from perishing. If a man has become an enemy of the gospel because of his own choices and his own thinking, do not allow that leaven inside of you. Your father is a good shepherd. Never forget the kindness of who he is and protect what he has given you to protect. The characters in this story are actual real human beings that were all destined for God's salvation. What is left is the choices that we make as men in our day, in our time. Verse 10. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. 
It's been a tough ten verses, haven't they? We're doing everything we can to get through them as quickly as possible. The best is yet to come, I promise that. A few moments ago, Justin described the whittling down of the southern kingdom. A few moments ago, Justin literally used his hands to describe that. This is a kind of devilish pincer maneuver. It, it looks like German tactics. It's compromise on one flank and killing on the other. Both result in death. I mean, clearly if you're stabbed with a sword, you die. Unfortunately, you don't recognize that a little bit of leaven, a little bit of compromise kills you just the same. It only takes longer. God brought these things about, but it was the people's own deceitful actions that actually accomplished the task. See, God didn't ordain before time began for Ahaziah to do these things. God ordained that his downfall would come because he was doing these things. The house of Eli is the same way. You can find this over and over and over. Calvin was not right. You were not destined for hell or destined for heaven. God desires all human beings to be in his kingdom. Amen. But your actions can ordain that you must face judgment. I personally would like to escape that destiny by trusting in Messiah and obeying him. The northern kingdom is being ravaged by the devil. Now the southern is suffering because they are acting just like the northern kingdom. When you think of Athaliah, crawfish pie and a filet gumbo. When you think of Athaliah, yeah, it's Louisiana roots. What are we going to say? Mishadamia. Athaliah is the full manifestation of the leaven and the devil's desire to destroy the Davidic line. As soon as something happens, as soon as she has the opportunity, she's killing her own grandkids. I would say that's unheard of, except I'm related to a woman exactly like this. I've met a couple grandmas that way. She's the full manifestation, and the devil wants to destroy the Davidic line. The strange thing is the way that he does it, of course it's war. Of course he does that, but it's also weddings. The weddings were more effective in these three generations than the war. And it's not just war and weddings. It's the want of the world in the southern kingdom. That might be the most damaging thing. You know, you can win an out-and-out spiritual warfare. But if you compromise yourself in what you marry yourself to, it's very tough to win. And if you get that right, but cannot stop wanting the things of the world... Well, then you find the full manifestation of a yeast infection. That's what happens. These are the tools that the devil uses to bring Judah to this point. And it looks somewhat hopeless. It's not hopeless. No. But we would like to talk to you about the way this has always been the shape of the battle. So we're going to walk through some of the devil's plots, stratagems, and attacks on God's people. Let's see if we can get that slide. The corruption of Adam's line, Genesis 6. This is angelic defections working to contaminate the human race. Then we have attempts to commingle Abraham's offspring with Abimelech and other men. That's Genesis 12 and 20. 
They were seeking to destroy what God had set apart as holy. In Genesis 50, there's a famine that threatens to starve Israel as well as neighboring peoples into ceasing to exist. There was not enough to sustain life at all. Then we have genocide of the males in Exodus 1, where a wicked king motivated by a satanic stratagem works to exterminate God's people by cutting off their male descendants. I think the Hebrew word used there is abortion, but I'm not sure. You'll have to check that. Exodus 14, we have Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites, working to cut them off as they are exiting this scenario. Then in Genesis 12, we have the people of Canaan populating the exact place that God intended to bring Abraham. I wonder why they found that land so attractive. Why is it that they decided to go there? Still do! 2 Samuel 7 contains the establishment of the Davidic covenant, where it is announced for all men, all archon, for the heavens and the earth to hear, this is my line. Then just a few chapters later, we see David being tempted in different areas where the enemy is working to lay up traps. But repentance saves the Davidic line because God had promised it. Now, before Justin takes us through the next slide, I want you to consider something. This Bible is a family story. And the story keeps narrowing down within the family to a specific line, but it's a family story. If you read the history of Fiji, it doesn't read like this. If you read about the Swedish people, it doesn't read like this. If you look at the aboriginal tribes in Australia, you will not find these stories. This is Satan's attack to stop what God has promised will be. That's what all sin is. It's an attempt to prevent an indestructible promise that God made. Now, the strangest thing is in our time, theologians are aiding in this this process. They're saying that God's promise was conditional in some way, that it's transferable in some way, that God no longer promises this family these things because they have sinned. Can I tell you how bad that would screw you? The promise is what is important. And not every person that receives the destiny will arrive at it. But the promise will remain faithful to itself always. And a part of the promise is the same family who received it will fulfill it. And that will be called All Israel. Let's move to the next slide. So after the Davidic covenant is announced, Satan begins to focus on the Davidic covenant and his attacks. In 2 Chronicles 21, we have a fratricide. One brother is killing all the other brothers in the line. That was last week. Wonder who influenced that. In the next one, the Arabians slew all of them, but Ahaziah, that's this week. The Arabs kill all of the royal line except one. In 2 Chronicles 22, Athaliah kills all but Joash. Tonight we're going to see Athaliah killing her own grandsons. Then we have in Isaiah 36 and Isaiah 38, Sennacherib threatens to wipe out Judah as a whole, or Sennacherib if you wish. Then we have in Esther 3, Haman's attempt. Haman attempts genocide 
it says that there is a peculiar people. There is Jews amongst us. In fact, it's one of the first books that mentions Jews by name. And Haman attempts to wipe them all off of the map. Wow. Who influenced that? <laughs> we so, go to the, so you think that it is a Older Testament issue because the Newer Testament's all about you. Yeah. But it's not. <laughs> in fact, in the first chapter of the book of Matthew, which happens to be the first book in the Newer Testament, think about what happens to the attack on the line of David. Mary descends from David. Joseph descends from David. There is a satanic fear that comes over Joseph. What happens if he refuses to marry or wed Mary? (laughs) It's easier to say marry Miriam, but, you know, whatever the case. Well, then we have a real problem. You can't continue the Davidic line without a a daddy and a mama. Okay? Then in Matthew chapter 2... Who is it and in what region that is being targeted to be killed? Herod is trying to kill the house of Judah. He, he, he killed all of the children that were Jesus' age in a certain region. Wow. And it is the region of Judah where the house of David is. Wow. How about Luke chapter 4? Nazareth. We have the rightful heir to the throne of David, and the town is trying to throw him off of a cliff. Why? This is Satan's stratagem. He said, well, it's because he's Messiah. Yes, but Messiah has to come through the line of David. It can only come through the line of David. The attack is on more than Messiah. It's on what God has promised and must be. Then, imagine that you're with the most seasoned, bearing straight, a northern sea kind of fisherman, and they're terrified from two storms in a lake that they see every day. These are satanic storms, and they're aimed at killing Jesus. Of course, he's asleep in the bow of the boat. He's not particularly... He's he's like Matthew on any given Sunday afternoon, right? Just totally unconcerned with everything else because he knows his God has got it. And then, of course, there's the crucifixion. Say, well, he's killed because he's Messiah. He's killed first and foremost because he's the king of the Jews. Which house gets the kingship of Israel? David. See, the, the attack never stops. It never shifts. The line gets narrower and narrower, and the attacks get more and more specific, but they're always against the royal line of David, and we're emphasizing it because Athaliah is clearly forecasting that tonight. By the way, next time you read Revelation 12, you might think of it as a spiritual summary of Satan's attack on the line of David. Then you might interpret it correctly. (laughs) Athaliah is the full manifestation of Satan's desires in the past, in our present, and in our future. There's one people group that are targeted more than any other, and the only reason you're ever targeted is your association with them which is why most of the Christian world remains silent when Jews are being killed, which begs the question, can you be a Christian and even do that? The answer is no. I would like like to show you what Rashi says. Rashi says about verse 10, And when Athaliah, the mother of Azahiah, saw that her, her son was dead, 
She rose and destroyed all those of royal descent of the house of Judah. She arose and destroyed. This is an expression in Hebrew that depending on how you read the vowel points, all the consonants are the same. And remember, it had no vowel points, which means you'd have to consider both. It can mean kill, it can mean destroy, or it can mean pestilence. She rose and became a pestilence to the house of David. She was indeed a pestilence in her killing, in her destroying, in the compromise that she promoted that invaded every area of the southern kingdom. You talk about having a problem in your house. She ends up on a throne of the southern kingdom and she's a daughter of the most compromised house the northern kingdom ever produced. Wow. Reminds me very much of some pulpits. But this is, uh, this is not the last verse Praise in the, the chapter God. tonight. Aren't Amen. you glad it's not the last? We wanted with all of our heart in an hour to get to the 11th verse. I mean, we tried. It's an hour and five minutes to get here. But we are now there. Let's read verse 11. Just the first two words for me, brother. But Jehoshaphat. Let's just say Jehosheba for fun. It's not right, but it works. All of the suspense up to the words, but Jehosheba. We're going to roll with that. I've never been so happy to hear two words in all my life. We're reading this today, and we're like, we, we have to preach three or four chapters. We cannot end the story here. We don't have time to preach three or four chapters. Then we found two words. But yeah. Jehosheba. Oh, yeah. So just in case, like us, you didn't know exactly who this was the moment that you opened Chronicles this morning. <laughs> oh, no, I can see. They, they've been studying it all week. They all got it. Look at it. I, I know Adam's got it back there for me. He's going to explain this slide that we're going to put on the screen. And uh, I'm just going to talk through it in case any area of it's fuzzy for Adam. But if you look over to the right of your screen in green, I'm going to walk through this slowly. Jehoshaphat, he has a bunch of sons. But Jehoram is the one that takes the throne after him. Jehoram has a wife named Athaliah. Yeah, that crazy wench. If you name your kid Athaliah, we're, we're, we're going to come talk to you. <laughs> so Athaliah, who's the child of Jezebel and Ahab, and Jehoram are married and have children. They're Ah-ha- Netflix and chilling. <laughs> Ahaziah, who is the king that has been the subject up to this point. Uzziah, another guy that we do not hear about. And they had a daughter named Jehosheba. All right. So Jehosheba right. is a descendant of Jehoram. And Athaliah. So that makes Athaliah her mama. Man, you got to love family politics in the house of God. But they're family. (laughs) Yep. Brother Linton, if you would pick up at the very beginning of verse 11 and read all the way down to verse 12 for us, knowing who we're talking about now. The daughter of King Jehoram. Wait, I thought that this was the daughter of Athaliah. (laughs) It is. Athaliah is the mama. Jehoram is the daddy, but the chronicler is not going to label her like that because she does a good job. He he doesn't want you to associate it, but it is who she is. So Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal 
princes who were about to be murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom because Jehoshiba, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of the priest Jehoiada. Man, she married well. Was Ahaziah's sister. Yeah, if your mama's Athaliah and your grandma's Jezebel, find you a Jehoiada the priest to marry. It'll fix you right up. Man, it's terrible news that Athaliah is ruling the land. Yeah. I mean, a wicked grandmother ruling the southern kingdom. But you know what she doesn't know? Her daughter has hidden the future salvation of the king of Judah. Her mother has hidden the one left that would come to rule the line of David. How long did she hide him? Yeah, you look into that. You're spiritual people. In the seventh year, he becomes king. This is a pretty special woman. You know, throughout the Bible, you see incredible women doing all kinds of things. I mean, there is Tamar. There is Rahab who saw the people of God and the promises of God, so she chose to align with the promises of God. Don't forget J.L. That was near supernatural. How about Ruth? Ruth saw something in the people of Israel. She saw something in Naomi, and she decided to follow her. She said... Your people will be my people. And she inherited into the lineage of Messiah. Hallelujah! These women are special in the Bible. They remind us of, when we were reading this passage, we were reminded of a specific story. You know, it's interesting. You see all of these terrible things happening. You know, this is a very grievous chapter. We, we, like Eric said, we wanted to cover two so that we could see Athaliah dead at the end. And yet we decided to camp here. I really wanted to see Athaliah dead at the end. I'm just going to be honest. But we also want next week's to be very positive. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's remarkable out of this is the actions that one person can take to save a life, the actions that one person can take to save a family, the actions that one person can take to save a people, the actions of what one person can take to save a whole nation. This seems like a very dangerous thing for Jehoshiba to do. But in faith, she knew that this would be the line of David continuing, and she decided to risk her own life and save this child. This reminded us of someone. When a year ago, two years ago, I was in Israel with Eric, we went to Yad Vashem. And Yad Vashem is the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem. It is the biggest in the world and probably the most well put together in the world. For sure. Before you go in, the the whole complex is surrounded by trees. And these trees are called the Garden of the Righteous throughout the nations. The Jews have planted a tree for every Gentile that risked their life to save Jews through the Holocaust. And there's a tree there for the person named Irina Sindler. I've never heard this person before. Eric told us the story. Irina Sindler was born somewhere around the 20s. She was known... Her family was known for being kind to Jews. They lived near Warsaw, where Warsaw had the biggest ghetto in the Nazi regime. They lived near there, and their family was kind to Jews. They were so kind, her, her father treated Jews for free when they were sick. And when her father died, the Jews wanted to take care of them, and her mother said, no, we won't take it. She grew up and saw what the Nazi regime was doing in the Warsaw ghetto. She was a social worker 
for the Polish aid services. And she would go into the Warsaw Ghetto and she would find Jewish babies. And what she would do is she would sneak out these Jewish babies at her own risk. Any, in those times, anyone going in and out giving aid to Jews were liable that they could be killed. And not just them, their entire family, the entire family of those aiding Jews would be killed. But she saw that these were a righteous people. So she decided every time that she went in, she would come out with young infants and she would stash them in her briefcase. Now, along the lines, the Germans found out about this. They took her, they imprisoned her, they prosecuted her, they beat her, they tortured her. Broke her legs. She would not give up the names of the children that she rescued. She would take the children and she would put them into Christian homes so that the children would receive a Christian name and they would no longer be Jews in the eyes of the Nazis. And she would not release any of the information where those children were hiding. Now the story goes, long time later after the war, she was released. She was released back into public and the story goes something like, she's in the hospital at an old age and there are people coming into the hospital to meet her and she doesn't know who they are. It turns out, in fact, those are the children that she saved. Those are the Jews that she saved. Now, it's an incredible story. What we take away from it in the trees of the righteous Gentiles is why are there so many? Why are there so few trees? Six million are killed. Why are there so few? And we take note over people like Irina Sindler because they stood up, even though she was not someone born again, even though she was not filled filled with the spirit of God and under the kind of teaching that we had. She took a stand against evil and decided that these people should not be killed because their God is Yahweh. When one righteous person stands up, you say, but wait, she wasn't righteous. I'd say she's more righteous without her profession of faith, but with righteous deeds than you are if you have a profession of faith, but don't have righteous deeds. The, The second thing that is amazing about it is she buried their birth information so that they could reclaim their Jewish identity because she understood from talking to Jews that the promise was specific to their people group. That's interesting, isn't it? Justin's rightly pointed out that it's called the garden of the righteous. I would rather that it be the forest of the righteous. There simply weren't enough people that did what she did. But the Bible is full of women who stood up when everybody else sat down. And for that, we applaud it. We we notice that Athaliah is not the star of the story tonight. She's not the most prominent. She's not the most powerful. She's just the one with the biggest infection. This woman is the star of the story. The battle has been going on since God said something regarding the very first woman. Let's put that on the screen. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord speaking to a serpent speaks about what he's going to do through a woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman. woman. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first foot of a messianic promise that is dependent on the Davidic line and still 
dependent on the Davidic line because it's not done. The other foot has to drop. This is why Paul writes in Romans 16.20, same chapter where he says every Gentile has an obligation to Israel. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Jesus is the first foot. The Davidic line is the first foot. But when every human being that answers the call of God lives faithfully with the Davidic line, both feet drop on the enemy. Amen. And in this story tonight, Auntie Jehosheba, who saves Joash, she's like the other foot dropping. And we found her to be the most inspirational in the story. The promise of the Davidic line is one that is indestructible. When God said it would come through this line, he intends to keep that promise, and he has. I want you to notice in the slide that we just read, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or warfare between you and the woman. Why didn't it say I will put enmity between you and the son? God ordained that righteous women of faith that are married to priests of the Most High God might be the carriers of the hope and salvation that we have for the future. We are participators as families, as households, in God's will being done upon the earth and the perpetuation of an indestructible line. We've read to you Psalm 89 many times before, but it seems fitting that we read 35 through 37 once again. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever. It's called his line, and it is carried by righteous men and women who had participated in that indestructible promise to David. Men like Jehoiada, who were priests in their own home, priests in their own day, priests in their own life, and women that did not give way to fear and did what was right. That is how his promise was kept. That is how God does not lie to David. And his throne will endure before me like the sun, and it will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. As sure as the sun is rising in the morning, his promise through the Davidic line will be fulfilled. The question is, what righteous families will participate in bringing it about? We have an opportunity to rise to the extent that God has promised salvation is coming to the earth. We are co-heirs and participators in this promise. I heard that the other day, Athaliah was behind somebody in a car. Oh, her name's not Athaliah, but it's what God would call her. Just like the woman at the church of Thyatira, probably her name was not Jezebel, but it is what Jesus called her. The continual charge is that because we teach men to stand up and lead their home, that somehow or another, we're sexist. I want you to read what God's Word says about this. Because the Davidic promise depends on righteous women. Period. Luke 1.26 In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
God chose to enter the world through a righteous woman, and he chose several times for a righteous woman to save the world by saving a Davidic son. We're not sexist. We believe that men should be men and women should be women, and both should be holy. You know, we didn't tell you about Irina Sindler and the way her life ended. I mean, you kind of heard it, but you didn't really. Not only did people visit her at her death that she saved, but the very nurse that took care of her in her dying moments was one of the children that she saved. And they didn't find out about it until the last hours of her life. But that's, that's not the most amazing part. Christians, we're sexist because we believe men should lead. Well, you tell me what is sexist. Believing that a man can be holy and a woman holy and they can respect the roles that God gave them? Or nominating Irina Sindler for a Nobel Peace Prize and she lost to Al Gore because of his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. But we're the sexist ones. Sure. Luke one thirty five says what the promise is that Mary is carrying. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary was given the responsibility of carrying a son of David that is the Son of God. Luke, in the same chapter, very specifically, I believe it's verse 27, says he will be given the throne of his father David. If you have no Jehosheba, then you can't have Mary. You can't have Joseph. You can't have Jesus because you would have no Davidic line. Women have safeguarded this as men have carried it. We must work together. And you know how you do that? You do not give your son to Athaliah and you do not give your daughters to men like Ahab and Omri. You clean your house and you trust that God will bring you a suitable helpmate. You don't choose. Marriages have ruined the southern kingdom. It's important that we get this right. Because God has given this church promises. And they entirely depend on how indestructible the promise is, which is always, and how indestructible your trust is in the promise you were given. Okay, You're going to have to be as faithful as the promise is faithful. The promise is indestructible. The promise to David's line is indestructible. You can see that clearly through the satanic stratagem that we just showed you. It will never end despite how many attempts of Satan to destroy it because it depends on God's word. Now what you always see is those that trust in the indestructible promises of God, they become indestructible themselves. They become indestructible in their faith. They become unwavering in the promises of God like Abraham did. God gives them the Holy Spirit because they are trusting in an indestructible promise that cannot be broken. This is the promise that the Davidic son embodies. It's Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, 15 through 17. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power oh, yeah. of an indestructible life. Yeah. Yeah. 
He is a priest on the basis of the power of his indestructible life because there is an indestructible promise that was given to the line of David. And he is the king of the line of David. Now, the life of Jesus is not just indestructible. The whole line of Jesus is indestructible. Those that follow Jesus are indestructible as they cling to that indestructible promise and that indestructible priesthood. That is what Jehoshiba realized, is that this promise is indestructible. So she became indestructible in her actions toward protecting that line and rose up in faith. Think about what she did, because we're nearing an end. But, but think about it. She has nobody on her husband's side left. She, she only, I'm sorry, on, on the kingdom of Judah's side. She only has the relatives that are on the northern side. And she takes her stand against it for the promise of God. Amen. Consider what else she did. Six years she's in the temple. No grass grows in the temple. The sun's not shining inside the temple. I mean, she's indoors for six years hiding a child. Think through that for a minute. See, Athaliah embodies selfishness. Jehoshiba embodies sacrificial behavior. Okay? You want to know what still separates saints today? I mean, because keep in mind, all of these people are supposed to be saints. All of them. Northern and southern house. But you know a tree by its fruit. Yeah. Where you see sacrificial, consistent behavior on the behalf of others, that's a good tree. Where you see consistent selfishness, excusing of sin rather than executing sin, it doesn't matter what kind of tree you say you are. We can see what kind of tree you are. It's a good thing that our, our Savior is a vine dresser. It's a good thing that he knows how to prune, that he knows how to dig around roots. He knows how to help us. Grow. He knows how to save the line that he promised would not be destroyed. He knows how to do that. But you have to want to. Ahaziah was destined by birthright for a great thing. You're destined when you were born again for a great thing. But if you won't respond to the digging around the roots, if you won't respond to the pruning, the axe is already at the root. That's New Testament, friends. That's not Old Testament. And there is no difference between New and Old Testament. Saints, it's not just Jesus that has an indestructible life. Obviously, Jehoshiba had something that was beyond natural man. That was beyond the selfish living of Athaliah. Mama's in the room. Consider what it would be like to spend six years with a child hidden in an upper room, hidden in a bedroom somewhere, trying to keep them alive because of the promise of God and you had not seen the sun. The things that we cave to, that we quiver over, those are not made of an indestructible life. We have a very great inheritance, a great promise. We're going to take just a minute to say it. Men, women, we must stop excusing ourselves and presenting someone else as if they're just superior. I assure you, your pastor's knees don't quake with fear because they're just different than you. It's because they've learned to tap into an indestructible life. Why can one mother take care of six children and you feel like you're dying and losing your mind with one? It's because the other one has tapped into an indestructible life. 
Why can one man lead his home and another cannot? You need to tap into the indestructible life. But the good news is that when you're born of him, he has given you the right to be a son of God. That's not just salvation in the future. That is an indestructible life now that causes you to overcome. 1 John 5, 3 says this. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Not! No, no, not! Not burdensome. This is not positive thinking. This is not if you just say it and pretend enough, it becomes the case. These are men who've been overcome by an indestructible life that have tapped into something greater and it's not burdensome for them. The Bible is not entreating you to lie about a situation. It's entreating you to become a new man. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Man or woman, young or old, everyone born of God overcomes the world. David Bonham back there is a man who is born of God and we will see him overcome the world. Brandon is a man who is going to overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The areas where we find ourselves coming up short and we are not made of an indestructible life. You have identified an area that we are going to press in and know our Father better. To understand the Son that has been given to us better. When you find yourself caving to sinful Samaria... It's because we have not actually tapped into Jesus the Christ, no matter what we say. But there is always the opportunity for the man to turn to God and say, I need more. I need that indestructible life. Jesus, I believe you have it. Will you give it to me? I want to be the man that you've called me to be. And God will answer that kind of request. A heartfelt request that is followed by action is one God will answer for any man in this room, regardless how your week has been going, how your year has looked. You have the potential to become a new man here, now, tonight. War. Weddings. And want of the world. Those are the three tools that the devil uses to destroy the destiny of those that have inherited indestructible promises. Because the promise is indestructible, but you're not unless you cling to it. Mm-hmm. I want you to hear how Peter speaks about it, and you tell me which one you think he's emphasizing the most. War, wedding, or want of the world. This is Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life, and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's want. If you've been in a war, spiritually or otherwise, and you call on your king, he will help you. Amen. If you have intermarried with the enemy, he will help you. There's always a chance that that person will be transformed. 
Probably not any more than you are transformed. But there's very little cure for wanting the world. So wanting the world is what we're most vulnerable to. It's how you lose an indestructible promise and become corruptible yourself. But we can circumcise that away from our hearts if we choose to. Amen. You don't know how many times I've fallen on my face and said, Lord, I don't want to want to sin. And He'll change the very desires of your heart. He will cut that nature right out of you. I wish He did it all in a day. I mean, I wish there was some kind of sinful gastric bypass. (laughs) Sinful nature. Just get rid of it all. Exercise and dieting is just too hard. But there's not. He wants you daily to talk to Him about your desires so He can change it. He wants you daily to bring your want of the world to Him and say, I want this and I don't want to. That's what the bronze altar is actually all about. And it was public so that the community could help you. I mean, have you ever considered that you could look to your left and right and see what your brothers were walking up with and you could walk down a drop-down list menu and go, (laughs) brothers having problems at night. (laughs) That's because sin affects everybody. Your marriage affects everybody too. And whether you're winning or losing wars, it affects everybody. That's why we want to stand together as a community and start with the things we want. Personally, you deal with unleavened bread in your heart, yeast in your heart first. And then you do it as a community. And then you win every war that you face. I believe we're destined to win wars. We're going to do it with you or without you. But your destiny is that we do it together. Amen. That's, that's what we're fighting for. Do you honestly think that a church starts and says, I want as few people to come as possible? No. <laughs> do you really think that when you manage to gather a few hundred people, you're looking for any chance to throw as many out as you can? I mean, these things are said by people of a depraved mind. Like I said, Athaliah is driving around in her car in this neighborhood. <laughs> It's okay. We meet our wicked cousins. They come here too. There'll be no shortage of people that hate the righteous standard. The question is, will there be anybody that loves it? Will there be a Jehoshiba that takes that righteous promise right into the temple of your soul and nurtures it and grows it and strives to keep it alive for six years? Until in the seventh it becomes king of your whole life. Because that is and always has been what makes the kingdom advance. You have to do it personally. We have to do it as a community. And then we have to train those outside this community to do it. I would like to not fight a war on two fronts. I'd like to not be in two hemispheres at one time. I would love it if everybody in this room was as committed to getting rid of want of the world as the leadership of the church is. If everybody was as committed to having a wedding, a marriage that was as free from yeast as the leadership is. Because then I know winning the war would be an easy thing to do. 
please, as a body, don't make us go to war with you over those things. Amen. We can win the war. We cannot train your household for you. We cannot shape your heart for you. You have to want to. And if you want to, he'll meet you in it. He will fix the problems that are there. And we'll all win together. In fact, I think I think Psalm 138 says something to that effect. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. This psalm was written by King David. And I imagine he's thinking about the Lord and he's saying, yes, your promises are true. Everything you promised me is indestructible. You've proven throughout history, through all the attacks of the enemy, through everything that your promise will stand against incredible odds. Lord, you've proven that you will cause this to happen. And I believe that you will fulfill your purpose for me. Do not abandon the works of your hand, Lord, because I need it. I imagine Jehosheba was in the same position. Lord, you will fulfill your purpose for Judah. Lord, your, your love endures forever for Judah. Do not abandon the works of your hands for Judah, Lord. I'm the only one left. This son is the only one left. And I can imagine the Lord speaking to her saying, Yes, my love endures forever. Yes, I will fulfill my purpose for Judah. But Jehosheba, do not abandon the works of your hands and what you know you must do. One woman out of all of the others who did not take a stand, one woman made a difference. The incredible truth that God's promise is indestructible. It will never be done away with. God's promise to Israel and God's promise to you cannot be erased. It is irrevocable. And yet, there's a truth here. You cannot abandon the works of your hands. If you abandon the works of your hands, then you cease to become a recipient of the indestructible promise. She was one woman. One woman out of many. Do we have one person in here who will stand up and not abandon the works of their hands for the promise? Imagine it depends on you. Imagine the entire promise given to you. One life. One family, one nation depends on one person who will not abandon the works of their hands. Will you stand up? Will you stand up and ask the Lord to show you what is causing you to put down your labor? Will you stand up and ask the Lord to show you those things? Because the promise is true. The promise will always be carried out if we continue to work for it. All we have to do is just keep going and not quit. All we have to do is do the next right thing we know the Lord wants us to do. And the promise is sure and yes and amen in His sight. So ladies, we are closing. Men, we're closing too, but I want to say something to the ladies. I'm looking around the room and I see a few eyes that got sad at certain moments. And I know why, because I know your husband. Jehosheba stood up. You know who the star of the next chapter is? Her husband. You're never going to see more change in somebody else than's happening in you. But if you are being transformed, 
you girls have got a heart-turning superpower. Yes. Amen. You, have, you have no idea what it may cause. Start with transformation in you. Don't want the things of the world. And then God will fix all the wedding issues, and then the war issues will get fixed. It starts with you. Whether you're male or female, it starts with you, but it starts with you. That's why it's one life and not somebody else's life. <laughs> it's one life, then one family, then one nation. When we do stand our feet, here's the order we want you to go through. What inside of me is leaven that shows that I want the world? Get rid of it. Then think, what can I do to promote the change that's happening in me in my home? Then think, how can I contribute to the overall war effort? There is no other order. Nothing else will work. No matter how much you would like to skip to another step, it will totally fail if you don't do it in that order. But if you do it in that order, we can't help but succeed. Would you stand to your feet? Mighty King. Are we